0: Perhaps you've heard the story of the wise king who one day while he was sitting in court, holding court on his throne, two women who were of the, how shall we say, oldest profession came to him to plead their case and to have him judge their case between them. These two women each uh, became pregnant and bore children about three days apart from one another. They lived in the same house and during the night, Uh, one of the women rolled over in her sleep uh, onto her child and it suffocated to death. She, in the middle of the night, then switched the babies, took the living child for herself and placed the dead baby at the side of the other woman. And so shortly after that, the two women, the one who felt defrauded, who felt that her baby was stolen from her, went to the king to plead their case. And The one woman bringing the case said, here's what happened. We each had babies three days apart in the night. She suffocated one accidentally, swapped our babies, and now I know that she has stolen my son and given to me the dead son. The first woman who did the swapping in the middle of the night Again, there are no witnesses to this whole uh, occasion, to this whole uh, event. The first woman, of course, denied the charges and claimed that the living son was indeed hers and that she had never done any such thing. And so now they left justice in the hands of the king. And he sat there a moment and he said to the ladies and to the uh, those that were serving in his court, he said, bring to me the child and bring me a sword. Just cut the baby in half, and we'll give half to one mom and half to the other. Since they can't seem to make up their mind as to who the living baby belongs to, we'll just cut it in half and give one half to uh, uh, to uh, each of the others. At that moment, uh, the woman who was the defrauding party, the one who switched the babies in the night, said, "That's fine with me. I'll take half a baby, as though that's an option." The other woman said, no, no, my Lord, far be it from me that you should ever do this thing. Give, give the child to the other woman. Don't kill this baby. In that moment, the wise king knew that the woman who wanted to protect the life of the baby was the one who was the real mother. And so he gave back into her care her son, which was stolen from her in the night. By now, many of you know that this is a story of King Solomon, the son of David, who in all of his wisdom was able to know, for lack of a better way of speaking, where to cut the baby. His wisdom was on display in that instance. We know Solomon had no intent to actually cut the baby in half and give half to to one or the other. But God had given him such wisdom to be able to know how to solve this situation where there were no witnesses to what had gone on in the night, where there's nobody else to give attestation to who this baby belonged to. The Lord had given Solomon wisdom to know where to cut the baby. Wisdom like Solomon's is a, a thing that I think many of us long for, a thing that many of us wish that we had. Uh, Solomon in his own life and what we read in Second Kings and even in Chronicles about about King Solomon was gifted this wisdom by God. It didn't come from himself. It was something that God had given to him. Wisdom is a thing that, we, that is celebrated all throughout Scripture, not only in the life of Solomon, but also in the books of the Bible like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, uh, even somewhat in, in Job as well, this celebration of what it means to be wise. These other books of wisdom, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, are not the only wisdom books uh, of Scripture there are also songs of wisdom, songs that celebrate the, the goodness of the wisdom that God gives in the book of Psalms. This is the next in the, the types of genres, the types of literary types of psalms that we'll explore today. The wisdom psalms poetically present uh, very often a contrast in ways of living. Foolish versus wise a a foolish way of living versus a wise way uh, of living Uh, the Psalms of wisdom these songs of wisdom celebrate the wisdom that God gives uh, and and lead us to uh, become wiser even still As we as Christians read these Old Testament songs of wisdom, we ought to read them and and read from from them, seeking to continue to return to the wisdom, the fear, the word of the Lord uh, as a source of all true wisdom, which leads us into salvation and to godly living. Psalm 19, as we'll discover here in a moment, points us to this book, the word of God, as the source of all true wisdom. Now, as you're reading through the Psalms and you're wanting to, because after the chapter, the Psalm chapter or whatever, there isn't like a a descriptor of what kind of Psalm it is all the time. Most of the time there is not. Uh, uh, And so if you're looking to discern which are wisdom Psalms, look for these things, primarily word choice, the things that the Psalmist says. Very often the wisdom songs will have better than sayings like to, to fear the Lord is better than to fear man, right? As a very generic example, to do this is better than this. Uh, often the wisdom psalms will, or wisdom songs will have alphabetical structuring, like acrostics, like we've seen before in Psalm 34. Psalm 119 is another example of this, where every stanza begins with uh, the a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Also, in the wisdom songs, there's constant admonition, or we could say encouragement, to be wise, to to uh, gain wisdom, to uh, walk in the wisdom of the Lord. Wisdom songs have various different themes, like the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. That's a theme that comes up very often. There's a contrast of wisdom and folly, so not just how people live, but what is wise and what is foolish. Often, the wisdom songs will give practical advice for living. These are good things to do. Walk this way. Don't do these things. Uh, Be around these people. Don't hang out with those people. And then finally, the wisdom songs uh, frequently highlight the fear of the Lord. As we know from Proverbs uh, 1, verse 7, I believe that uh, uh, Solomon says in all of his wisdom that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And so, of course, we should expect to see the fear of the Lord as a theme in these wisdom songs. Now, I've placed in your worship guide, you'll see at the bottom of the page, just on the inside, several other wisdom psalms for you to read this week as you continue to uh, study and just work your way through this genre. They are Psalms 1, uh, 19, which we'll look at today, 32, Interestingly, 34, which we looked at as a psalm of thanksgiving several weeks ago, but Psalm 34 has kind of a wisdom section in it. Psalm 37, 49, 73, 112, the longest of all the psalms, 119, and Psalm 128. I encourage you to, to go to those psalms this week and read them uh, and, and gain wisdom as you celebrate the wisdom that the Lord gives in His Word. And now let's turn our attention to Psalm 19, the wisdom song that, we ha- um, that, that is the focus of our time this morning. Uh, as you are comfortably able, would you stand with me as we read uh, God's word and honor him by it? <clears throat> to the choir master, a psalm of David. The psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, now that is our prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in our sight you, are Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Be seated. I love Psalm 19, and I am fighting everything within me to keep from preaching six hours on this psalm today. It's awesome. I would, I would love to, but I won't. Uh, some of us have lunch plans, I know that, and, um, and we can't keep the AC on forever. Psalm 19 points us to at least two kinds of wisdom and a way to walk in wisdom. Two sources of wisdom and a way to live wisely. The psalmist in verses 1 through 6 first points us to the wisdom of creation, celebrating the wisdom that creation communicates to us. We see in these first six verses that the wisdom of creation, of the created world, of the cosmos, is loud, but it is limited. The wisdom that the created world speaks to us is very loud, but it is limited, it's, it's, it's stunted, it's hindered. These first verses speak in very poetic fashion about how the whole universe declares the glory of God. You see that first in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The psalmist saying that the created world, especially the the skies and the sun as we see in the verses that follow, the created order is particularly glorious and awe-inspiring. I said several weeks ago as we were looking at Psalm 148 and the... Uh, the hymn that is there that, that calls all of creation to praise the Lord, that I've, I've not yet met a person in my life that looks to the, to the night sky filled with stars or, or even just observes the sun passing through the sky during the day or the moon at night who looks at the mountain vistas that we have here in Albuquerque or other places that just looks at the majesty of creation. I've never met a person that can look at that and just go, Neh. it's all right, I guess, if that's your thing. The creation is glorious and awe-inspiring, not because it has a glory of its own, but because it communicates, it reflects the glory of its creator. As long as man has been alive, the majesty of the created world has captured our attention. It's inspired exploration. It has driven us to study how it all works together and holds together. And so here in these verses, the psalmist says that creation speaks loudly It is pouring out speech, verse 2. Day-to-day pours out speech. Night-to-night reveals knowledge. Now, verse 3, I I have a little bit of an issue with the English Standard Version, which I normally preach from week to week, which translates verse three as saying, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. I think the better translation is there is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, which is the, the, the psalmist saying the heavens speak, the, the sun declares the glory of God, but not with actual words right? The the sun doesn't speak verbally to us as it's rising in the morning. It's not coming up over the sandias saying, God is so glorious. Aren't you glad that I'm here to show you God's glory? That would be kind of weird if the sun did that. The psalmist is saying it, the sun declares the glory of God, but not with actual, not with actual words, not verbally. In fact, the, the sun, the, the stars, and the night sky, the, the moon as it passes, the mountain vistas, everything that we see communicates the glory of God, not with words, but, but much louder if that's possible. There is no corner of the globe, dear friends. There is no living person on this earth uh, out of the nearly seven and a half billion of us who has not been privy to the wisdom of the created world. Creation speaks loudly. Well, the wisdom of creation, though loud, is limited. Though we can look at the created world, look at the universe, look at the cosmos, and see the glory of God reflected there, there is only so much about God that we can see and can learn from creation. Creation speaks loudly, but it speaks in a limited fashion. By observing the created world, we can know that there is a God whose own glory must be greater even than the glory of the sun, which the psalmist speaks about, or the splendor of the night sky. Now the sun and the sky and the mountain ranges... Can tell us that there is a God and that He is mighty, that He is divine, but they cannot tell us what He is like. They can tell us a little bit about a little bit about Him, but they can't really tell us who He is. In fact, this, when the psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God, he uses the most generic name for God that the Hebrew language will allow. It's the Hebrew word El. It's the most generic way of speaking about God in Hebrew. It's the 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 same way that uh, the English word God is a very sort of generic word, isn't it? Right? We can talk about believing in God, but depending on who we're talking to, if we're talking to uh, maybe a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Sikh, our understanding, our conception of God may be completely different from one another, even though we're all using the same sort of generic word. The heavens can reveal to us the glory of God, but only in kind of a, a generic sort of basic framework sort of way. What we're reading in these first six verses of Psalm 19 is a poetic summary of what theologians call natural or general revelation. Very simply, natural general revelation is this understanding, this teaching, that the created world tells us that there is a God, but little else beside that. The created world can tell us that there is a God, but cannot tell us much more beyond that. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, Paul says to the church at Rome, He says, What can be known about God is plain to them, plain to all people, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, and so they are without excuse. Paul echoing the sentiment of the psalmist in in Psalm 19 saying, the heavens declare the glory of God, that he is eternally powerful and that he is divine. He exists outside of the created realm. As its creator, he is not dependent upon it, but independent from it. He rules over it. He reigns over it. He made all of it. It exists at his pleasure. But that's all that nature can tell us about God. The wisdom of creation, friends, speaks loudly but it speaks in a limited way. And so true wisdom then is in knowing that we need more than our senses to know God. True wisdom is found, is known, in knowing that we need more than what our eyes can see and our noses can smell and our ears can hear and our hands can touch. We need more than our our physical sensations to know God. I recently uh, finished watching all seven seasons of Star Trek Next Generation on Netflix uh, it was a fun trip down memory lane for me when I was a kid and watching that. And one of my favorite characters on that show is Geordie LaForge, who's a lieutenant commander, and he is the chief engineer on the USS Enterprise. Now, Geordie was blind, born blind. I um, almost said born blind from birth. That's, that's a tautology. if ever. I've... So Geordie was born blind from birth. And Never could see anything, but because uh, uh, the, the events of Star Trek Next Generation take place some two or 300 years in the future, uh, at that time, uh, scientists, doctors were able to create different sort of uh, uh, devices that would compensate or overcome for physical limitations, and so you'll remember from the show, Geordie LaForge, played by LeVar Burton of Reading Rainbow and Roots fame, boy, that's a, wow, that's a span of a, uh, of, a, of a career in acting right there, Roots, Star Trek Next Generation Reading Rainbow. Anyway... Jordy LaForge, you'll remember, wore this visor over his eyes. It looked kind of like a child's, uh, a little girl's headband that they just pulled over his eyes and made him to wear. But his visor was connected to his visual cortex in his brain. And so the visor would take in all these different uh, electromagnetic fields and, and other sorts of things in the world around, transmit it into a signal and import that into his visual cortex so that he could see the world around him, so to speak. There are a couple of episodes where they actually show uh, what Jordy's vision looks like through his visor. And it doesn't look like what we see day to day. It's different hues of purple and blue and red and, and orange, kind of like if you're looking like at an infrared heat signature kind of camera. But there are other things, too, that Jordy's brain is processing through the visor. He's able to see electromagnetic fields, which we can't see with our own eyes, and different kinds of particle emissions and other things going on. And so Jordy, through his visor, was able to able to see far more than the naked eye and that way he became a a valuable asset to the crew of the starship enterprise because he was able to see more than even human senses were would allow him to see so also friends we need more than what our eyes will allow us to see to know who god is we can know a lot uh, about the general framework, the general existence of who God is, that He is eternally powerful, that He is divine from nature. But we need we need more than our physical eyes, more than our ears and and other things to know God. We need spiritual added information. If only, if only we had such a spiritual visor that could reveal to us more about God. Good news we do. The wisdom of creation speaks loud, but it speaks in a limited way. There is another kind of wisdom that speaks just as loudly, but far more clearly, and that is the wisdom of God's Word. And it is to the wisdom of God's Word that the psalmist turns in verses uh, uh, 7 through 11 and kind of through the rest of the psalm. And here's where I want to spend about 14 hours preaching today. General revelation is what we can know about God in a general way from creation, His uh, eternal power, His divine nature. But special revelation or specific revelation, in contrast to general revelation, is the Christian doctrine that says God has revealed Himself in personal and knowable terms to His creatures. That more than just creating things that reflect His glory, He has actually spoken intelligibly to us about Himself. Not by what he has created, but by his own spoken and written word. This word that we hold in our laps today. It's interesting how the psalmist moves from general revelation in speaking about God in generic terms, using that Hebrew word El to speak about God, to how much more specifically he speaks about God or refers to God in verses 7 through 9. Look in your Bibles with me. You'll see the fourth or fifth word. Uh, verse 7, the law of the Lord, that word Lord is there in all capital letters in uh, hopefully all of our translations, most of our translations. And this is done by translating committees who look at the original Hebrew and translate it into English. They, they put Lord in all caps like that to demonstrate to us that what we're seeing is the personal name of God that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses said to God, suppose I go to the people and they don't believe that you sent me, who shall I tell them that you are? And God said, I am that which I am. He, he gives his own personal name and his personal name is communicated with four Hebrew consonants and, and never any any vowel pointings in the, in the Hebrew text, which is quite interesting. But that, that personal name of God is what we know as, uh, or, or can most closely pronounce as Yahweh or, uh, uh, or the older version, Jehovah, which is kind of a Germanic uh, trans, uh, transliteration with uh, different uh, vowel pointings. Jehovah, Yahweh, I am who I am, the personal name of God now revealed to us and spoken to us as the psalmist um, uh, points us to the wisdom of God's own word. So he moves from a generic concept of God or generic name of God in verses 1 through 6 and and what we can know about God generically from creation to the specific personal name of God and what we can know about God from his word, the wisdom of God's word. Now where the, the wisdom of creation is loud but limited, The wisdom of God's word is clear, it is complete, and it is transformative. If you had to take your pick between the two, I hope you would pick the latter. If you had to take your pick between what can I know about God from nature or from God's word, I hope that you would pick God's word. It's far more specific. It's far more clear. It's far more effective. And to speak about its clarity, its completeness, and its transformative power, the psalmist, in almost six parallel statements, uh, describes for us different aspects of God's word. He used, so in these six statements in verses 7 through 9, we get six nouns that, that are sort of replacements for God's word. We get six adjectives that describe God's word. And we get six effects of God's word, six ways that God's word works on us as we listen to it and receive it. Look first uh, with me at the six nouns, if you will. You can kind of just run along the the first few, uh, first couple words of verses seven through nine. You see them very quickly law, testimony, precepts, commandment, fear, rules. I feel like I missed one, but I don't think I did. These are all sort of summary ways or different perspectives, different angles on the word of God. We could substitute the word of God at the beginning of each of these phrases or the word of the Lord at the beginning of each of these phrases. But the psalmist wants to point us to more specific contours of it. He says the law of the Lord is perfect. That word law is the Hebrew word Torah, which means instruction, discipline of the Lord. It can be a reference here to the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what we call the Pentateuch, or what in the Hebrew Bible is called Torah, in summary. But but more generally, it's all of Scripture. There are not just five books of God's Word that instruct us, that, that give us discipline for living, that point us to how we'll know the Lord, but all 66 books of the Bible are His law. The psalmist speaks also of God's Word as being testimony, this is a Hebrew word that means, uh, in many places, the testimony of the ten words on the tablets, the ten commandments. Certainly that is a testimony of God, of his faithfulness, of, 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 his, of, the, of how he communicates the boundaries of his relationship with the people of Israel. But God's testimony is, is far more than just the ten commandments, it's all of the words that he has spoken. The psalmist speaks of God's word as being his precepts. That word precepts means the rules that set limits on behavior or on on people that are in relationship with God. Precepts are kind of like house rules that you might have in your home with your children. These are the things we do and these are the things that we do not do. And so long as we are doing or not doing those things, we're in good relationship together in our home. So also God gives precepts in his word that give boundaries around our relationship with him. The psalmist speaks of God's word as his commandments. That word commandments are these imperatives, these commands that are given by Yahweh. Again, the, the tablets of the commandments of <clears throat> Exodus 20 could be in view here, but certainly, again, not only those. The only, God does not only give us commandments, uh, give us imperatives by which to live and which to follow and obey in Exodus 20, but all through Scripture. Then fifth, in uh, the first part of verse 9, the psalmist does an interesting thing. He moves from the word of the Lord to, to one of the effects of the word of the Lord. Instead of saying the word of the Lord is something, he says the fear of the Lord is clean. Now the fear of the Lord, we know, is not that sense of being terrified that he's going to do something wicked and evil and destroy us. That word fear of the Lord is most often understood as that reverent and worshipful knowledge of God. The effect of God's word here in verse 9 is substituted for the word of God itself. The scriptures as we read them, as we embrace them, as we let them flood over us, lead us to the informed, the intelligible, the intentional and reverent worship of God. The more we read this, the more we know of the God that this communicates to us, the more we Fear him, the more we revere him, the more we want to worship Him for all that he is and does. Then sixth and finally, among the nouns, the psalmist says, "The rules, the rules of the Lord in verse nine are true." That word "rules" comes from a fun Hebrew word uh, to say, called uh, the Hebrew word is "mishpatim." Everybody say that aloud with me? Mishpatim." And uh, now wipe the spit of your neighbor off the back of your net. The rules of Yahweh are his judgments. It's a better way to translate it, his judgments. The the word mishpat, which is the singular form of of that Hebrew word uh, for rules or for judgments, that word itself could literally be translated that which comes from a judge. The rules of God are not arbitrary rules that are set out by him. But these are standards and directives of conduct that are based upon his own eternal and perfect sense of what is just, of what is right. There is a moral and ethical implication to the the rules that God gives to his judgments. So God's word can be spoken of in at least six different ways and there are more, but the psalmist is good to not give us an exhaustive list. Law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear of the Lord, rules. And then he gives us six adjectives of what the the word of the Lord is like. He says first in verse 7, the word of the Lord is perfect, meaning complete, it's sound, lacking in nothing, it is morally blameless. In the second part of verse 7, the word of the Lord is sure, in the sense that that his word is verified, it is confirmed by his own finger and the witness of the people. His word, we're told in verse 8, is right. It's a word that means straight, it means level. The word of the Lord is like a plumb line to, to guide the work of a mason, to build a wall that is both straight and true. It is like a compass in the hands of a traveler on his journey or a sextant in the hand of a, of a, a captain at sea to uh, survey the stars, to know in which direction uh, it is going. The word of the Lord is right. In The second half of verse 8, the word of the Lord is pure, meaning pure in motive and without the stain of sin. Elsewhere, this word is translated radiant implying that it sheds light on the world. In verse 9, we learn that the fear of the Lord, which comes from the word of the Lord, is clean. Other words for clean or pure are already used in this passage. We've seen that, but the Hebrew word here for clean has ethical and moral uh, implications to it. It is to say that to fear the Lord is not only right, but it is also best. It is not an option uh, uh, among several of what one may do, It is the option par excellence of what one ought to do. You ought to fear the Lord. It is right, morally and ethically, to do so. And we learn also, uh, finally, that the Word of the God is true. The Word of the God is true, coming from a Hebrew word, emet, which means that they are reliable and sure. They're having a sense of permanence and enduring continuity. The Word of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, Wonderful ways to describe it. And then the psalmist tells us what the Word of God does. What is law, testimony, precepts, commands, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord, which are perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. What they do. First, they revive the soul. The perfect instruction of God, which we get in this Word, which is His wisdom to us, revives the soul. It brings back from sin and death that which is, uh, that which is transformed to be righteous and, and, and alive. Paul says to us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our sin and trespasses in which we once walked. But God, because uh, the great love with which he loved us because of his great mercy, called us to be alive together with Christ. The word of the Lord revives the soul. It brings from death to life those who were dead in sin and now by faith in Christ are made to uh, live spiritually again. His word makes wise the simple. The trustworthy commands of Yahweh are effective for giving those who are unlearned and those who are impressionable real wisdom. Our children can gain wisdom from reading God's Word. Now, simple does not mean like simple minded or, or dumb or anything like that. It just means those who maybe are ignorant or naive. The Word of the Lord brings wisdom to them. Parents, teach your children the Word of the Lord. They are impressionable. They are unlearned. Teach them real wisdom. The word of the Lord, we see third, rejoices the heart, which means that walking in the righteous way of God brings delight to the heart of man. This is not so because the precepts of God promote a smug self-righteousness, but because following the precepts of God, living within the boundaries of relationship that he has set for us, produces a humble joy of obedience. It is a joyful thing to do what God has made us to do. The word of the Lord enlightens the eyes. The word of the Lord gives understanding in the way that the psalmist describes it. It brings refreshing. Psalm 119, verse 130, says The unfolding of your words gives light, it imparts understanding to the simple. The word of the Lord opens our eyes to see and to understand the world around us as it really is. Not as our sinful hearts and minds might, might like to convince us that it is, but uh, the Word of the Lord shows us the world for how it truly is. It enlightens our eyes to, to our sinfulness and our need of a Savior. It enlightens our, our eyes to see from the, the created world that there is a God and that I need to know Him. The Word of the Lord, fifth, endures forever. This is the one that's the, the, the effect that is in, in conjunction with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord endures forever, the psalmist says. The fear of the Lord will not, and, and, uh, will not fail or falter. Neither will the one who has it. So if you fear the Lord, if you live your life in reverent worship of God, you are standing on a sure, on a sound foundation. There is no better place to put your feet to rest your life than in the fear, in the reverent and intentional worship of God. And then we learn finally that the word of God, and here we kind of get a a double adjective in the last one. It's not necessarily an effect that it has, but I'll I'll lump it in here. Verse 9, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We get a double adjective there. But this is to say that all of God's judgments, all of his moral and ethical implications and commands Individually and as a whole, all of God's judgments are free of injustice. They are free of impure motives. They have nothing keeping them short of perfection. They are ethically and morally pure. They are clean and right. And no one can successfully prosecute a case against God's judgments. That's what that means. God's word is clear. And it is complete and it transforms the life uh, of the one who reads it. But the psalmist says, because of all of these things, the scriptures, the word of the Lord, the wisdom that comes to us from them are of inestimable value. I knew I was going to have a hard time saying that word. We cannot estimate the value Of the word of the Lord, it's it's infinite, it's eternal, it goes on forever. There is no end to its value to us. The psalmist says in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Even today, thousands of years after the psalmist wrote this, we still value gold, do we not? Most of us have, uh, who are married, have gold uh, wedding rings. I don't, mine's tungsten because I break things. All right, but but we have gold necklaces, gold jewelry. Gold is still valuable. The word of God is more valuable than gold, even much fine gold, even gold that has been refined to its purest state. And it's also sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The word of the Lord, which is clear and complete and transforms the soul, is of inestimable value. There is nothing more desirable in the world than this word. I want to say that again because I don't know that it sunk in on all of us. There is nothing more valuable in all the world than this word. Church, do you believe it? Christian, do you know it? I mean, because that is what Scripture is saying to us. All the diamonds, all the gold, all the everything you could ever want for yourself does not match, does not even come close in value to the words that are printed on the pages of these books that we hold in our hands and sit in our laps. May I take an aside for just a moment and speak to, to those who are leaders in our church, particularly those who are teachers of this word, either in Sunday school classes or midweek Bible studies or whatever the case may be. This word of inestimable value is worth our every effort to understand rightly, to teach clearly, and to lead people uh, uh, into it in, in all, of its, all of its truth and in everything that it communicates. This is worth teaching with our every effort as best as we possibly can, as clearly as we possibly can. Because it's more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey. May we who are teachers of God's word not just say that with our lips, but may we live that with our lives and show it in our teaching that that this is truly awesome. There is no better subject to teach there is no better person to point people uh, to than God through his word. There are no, no greater truths in this world to know than that which uh, God's word communicates. And there is no savior greater than Jesus by whom we come to know through God's word in all the world. So you, friend, who are a teacher, whether you teach adults or you teach preschoolers or even babies on a Sunday morning... Know the value of what you hold in your hands today and teach it with all of the passion that that value should engender in your heart. Dear friends, true wisdom is walking with God in His Word. His clear, complete, transformative Word. True wisdom is living this life with this Word, in this Word. Not because we're worshiping the Word, but because we worship the one that the Word points us to. Again, there's no clearer revelation, there's no clearer description, no clearer communication to us about who God is than this word. And so true wisdom, really living a wise life is found in walking with God through his word, allowing it to find its way into our heart, to, to, to change us, to, to capture our imagination and captivate our, all of our passions and affections and then to live in worship to him out of that. It's not uncommon for me and probably for you either to hear Christians say that the Bible is God's guidebook for life. Now, this isn't an entirely untrue statement. It's just terribly insufficient for describing what God's word really is and does. To say that this is merely a guidebook for life puts it on the shelf with all the other self-help books at Barnes and Noble. This is more than a guidebook for life. Does God's word guide us in right directions? Yes, absolutely. But it does so much more than that. It does so much more than just point us in the right direction in life. It points us to our creator who knows us by name. This word does more than give us handy rules for living. The very word of God gives life itself. Moses reminds the people of Israel in Deuteronomy that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes those exact same words to Satan when he's in his wilderness period prior to beginning his public ministry. When Satan is tempting him to make uh, uh, bread out of rocks in the wilderness, Jesus turns to Satan and said, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Friend, do you believe that? Do you believe there's life in this word? Do you believe there's life in, in Jesus whom this word points us to? Or is it on the shelf? Thank you for answering that question. Is it on the shelf with all the other self-help books at Barnes and Noble? Friend, let it not be so. These verses that we have just read to us, verses seven through nine about or seven through eleven about the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, with, which is clear and complete and transformative and of inestimable value. These verses that we have just read reveal to us that Scripture is immensely more, immensely greater than just another good book. I majored in English in college and mostly literature. I read a lot of good stuff, Shakespeare, Milton, some other people. (laughs) Nothing holds up, not just in literary value, but value for life like this Word. This is so much more than just another good book. These verses, 7 through 9, tell us that of God's Word, we cannot plumb its depth, nor can we ascend to its greatest height. Its breadth is impassable and its slope is unscalable. It is entirely impossible to understand all that is in here and, and, and to really get our arms around all of the value, all of the wisdom that is God's word and, 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 and even to put our arms around the God that it points us to. We, we can't do it. And yet at the same time, God's word is comprehensible. It's understandable. God has spoken to us in human language. Do you see what a miracle that is? What an what a evidence of God's grace and his love toward us that he would actually speak to us. His word is impossible to, to, to totally comprehend and yet at the same time, we can totally understand it. It is clear. And his word is always inviting us to know God more deeply, to see him more clearly, to love him more dearly, and to walk with him more nearly. There is no word like this word. There is no book like this book. There is no wisdom like the wisdom that are on the pages that that are here because this is God's. Wisdom is walking with God in his word, the psalmist teaches us. And then he closes his song in verses 12 through 14 with pointing us to the right response to the wisdom of God's word. The wisdom of creation, which speaks loud but in a limited way about who God is, draws us to seek out more about who that God is that created the world and rules over it. And and God says, I'm very glad that you are seeking me. Let me point you in not just a good direction, but let me say to you exactly what I want you to know, which he's done in his word. So creation draws our hearts to want to know God. And as we follow that faithfully, God is good to speak to us in his word, to reveal himself specifically and clearly. And after God has spoken we must give some sort of response, right? When God speaks, assuming that we listen, we're going to decide to do one of two things, either to be obedient or to continue being disobedient, either to follow the Lord in the way of wisdom that he instructs us or to go our own way yet again. And the psalmist shows us in the verses that close this song, what a wise response to the wisdom of God's word is. First of all, in verses 12 and 13, repentance. Repentance. The wise way to respond to God's word is to repent from sin. He says in verses 12 and 13, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. The word of the Lord, friends, reveals our hidden sins. Often we will and are capable of sinning without being totally aware that we are sinning. Unnecessary or unintentional offenses that are given to others business dealings that truly accidentally bring negative consequences to other people, untruthful things that are spoken out of ignorance, all of these demonstrate our capacity and our fallen nature to do what is wrong, even unknowingly, even unwittingly. The word of the Lord reveals to us our hidden faults, our errors, the sins that we do unintentionally. They say, hey, you did this, uh, and what you did was sinful, so uh, now repent of that and seek forgiveness. For the word of the Lord also protects against intentional sins. Look at verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Now these presumptuous sins are the sins that we intend to do. And these are the sins that we commit and know that we are committing. They are the premeditated and fully known trespasses, rebellious acts against God that we walk headlong into on purpose. Idolatry, adultery, murder, theft, coveting, Envy, laziness, pride, lying, all forms of sexual immorality, anger. Shall I go on? These are all these presumptuous sins that we commit and know we are committing, that we commit and intend to commit. And the psalmist says, keep back your serving, keep me away from these kinds of sins. He, is say, he says, let them not have dominion over me. Quite literally, the psalmist is saying and and, and leading us to sing also, by your word, Lord, by your clear, complete, transformative, perfect word, protect me from being ruled by sin. Don't just reveal to me the sins that I have and lead me to repentance, but also protect me from committing sins again. The right response to the wisdom of the Lord is to repent. Repent. In being taught what is sinful to respond in repentance, to turn from sin and selfishness and living life on our own terms to then turn to God and to live in obedience to Him, trusting His grace to us in Jesus Christ, His Son who died for our sins, and walking, living in obedience to Jesus. The first part of a wise response is repentance. The second part part of a wise response to God's Word is to have integrity of heart. The last verse of this psalm is a prayer from the psalmist and for the congregation, that what the psalmist speaks and what his heart lingers on, the words of his mouth, the meditations of his heart, that they would be acceptable and pleasing to God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. He is saying, may every word out of my mouth and may every thought and every affection of my heart be pleasing to you, God, he prays. This is a word uh, or a phrase that we often pray in church. I'm sure you probably heard it. If you spent much time at all in church, you've heard this word prayed often at the beginning of sermons. I've prayed it for myself even this morning, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable to God. That is a right prayer to pray. God, may I have integrity, not only uh, uh, integrity with what I say and, and with the orientation of my heart. Here you know, we learn that there's not so much... Um, we don't learn so much about a person's integrity from what they speak necessarily, but, um, but we learn a lot about who a person is by what they speak. Jesus teaches his disciples and some of those who are questioning his authority in Matthew chapter 12, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is to say, if you feel a particular way in your heart for very long, it's going to make its way out of your mouth. If you, if, if you despise someone that you work with, you may be able to hide your despisement of them for a period of time by only saying good things about them or, um, uh, or by just not saying anything evil or wicked about that person. But eventually, over time, if you continue to despise your coworker, it's going to come out in what you say. You're going to say some sort of off-handed insult or, or, or gossip about them behind their back to somebody else at work. What you know, what you feel, what you believe and, and are, are affectionate about in your heart is going to make its way out in your speech. And so the psalmist says, God, I I don't want just the words of my mouth to glorify you, but I want the meditation, I want the affections of my heart to glorify you and to be pleasing to you. And if our hearts are in a position that are pleasing to God, if we're humbly submitted to his authority in our life, if we are checking our sin at every point and repenting as often as God reveals sin to us, then that's going to make its way out of our mouth and into our lives. And that is an incredibly good thing. Integrity of heart is a right response to God's word. And then third and finally, the wise response to God's word is to continue to depend upon God. The very last line of the psalm, the psalm says, let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. My rock and my redeemer. You see the two things that, the things that those two words communicate about the psalmist's relationship with God you're my rock, right? You're my refuge. You're my fortress. You're the, you're the footing for, for my life. You're the sure foundation for all of my hope and faith and all of my living. You're my rock, God, and you're my redeemer. You're the one that has bought me back from sin. You're the one that has bought me from death and given me over to your own uh, life and the eternal life that is in knowing you. The right response of one who listens to, the wise response of one who listens to the wisdom of God's word is to live a life not just of repentance and of integrity of heart, but with dependence upon God as our rock and our redeemer. The word of God is not only good, dear friends, to reveal the real depth of our sinfulness and our need for a savior, but also to point us to the one who can redeem us from our sin. The psalmist knows who that is. It's the Lord. Lord, you are my rock. You are the one who has rescued me from sin. And so, dear friends, wisdom, true wisdom is responding rightly to God. Knowing what what we can know generally about God from creation, what we can know specifically about him through his word, ought to lead us to respond rightly to him with repentance from sin, integrity of heart, dependence upon him in all things. And so my final exhortation to you this morning is to let wisdom have its full effect in your life by knowing Jesus Christ, the son of God, as the word and wisdom of God. I'm talking about wisdom, celebrating wisdom, how to be wise. And now I'm telling you that Jesus is the word and wisdom of God. And I don't blame you if some of you are a little bit confused. But this is clearly what scripture is pointing us to, that Jesus Christ is the personified word and wisdom of God. Take a brief tour with me, will you, through some verses of the New Testament to see that Jesus is the word and wisdom of God. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples, begins his gospel, his story of Jesus' life this way in John chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. And then verse 14, you'll see it on the screen behind me. Jesus says, or John says, this is how he introduces Jesus to us. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, speaking about Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14 says, and the Word, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 and 24. He says, We preach Christ crucified, crucified for sins, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called. And by that, he means to those who have been called by God's grace to place faith in Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is the word of God, and he's the wisdom of God, and he reveals to us all of God's wisdom. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, another letter of Paul. He says this, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if Jesus is the word and the wisdom of God, then Psalm 19 is not just about the Bible, but about the word and wisdom of God that the Bible points us to. God in flesh, Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, died on the cross in our place and was raised again from the dead so that any who would believe in him would be forgiven of their sins, given the hope of eternal life and made by the indwelling of God's own Holy Spirit in their life to look more like Jesus day after day. And so we can read Psalm 19 uh, as being about Jesus. May I, and Lord strike me dead if this is a bad idea, substitute the word of the Lord with Jesus in, I think, the best part of this psalm, verses 7 through 11. Listen, if we read Psalm 19 about Jesus, this is what it reveals to us. Jesus is perfect. He revives the soul. He brings the soul back from the dead to life. The, uh, Jesus is sure, making wise the simple. Jesus is right, rejoicing the heart. Jesus is pure, enlightening the eyes. Jesus is clean, enduring forever. Jesus is true and righteous all More to be desired is he than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by him, by Christ, is his servant ward. And in following him and keeping after him, there is great reward." Dear friends, there is no book like this book. There's no wisdom like this wisdom. And there's no Jesus like the Jesus that it points us to. The word and the wisdom of God. I haven't preached six hours. (laughs) But man, I want to. Listen, this word is... I hope that today I am showing and demonstrating to you all of the, the passion and, 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 and value and, and all the other words that aren't coming to mind right now that I, that I hold for this word. There is no better thing that I can give my life to in ministry than to teaching this word to you, pointing you to Jesus, to follow him more faithfully each and every week. I love what you have called me to do. I love the call that God has placed on my life because it's his wisdom, his word that I get to point us to every single week. It's his wisdom and his word that I get to bathe in all week long to teach you with, I hope, passion and exuberance on Sunday mornings. And I pray, dear friend, that a little bit, just a little bit, of the love that I have for Christ through God's word will rub off on us just a little bit that we would all come to know and love Jesus, the word and wisdom of God in the way that his word points us to him. Let us be wise. Let us respond in repentance of sin to to Jesus today. Let us seek his help to have integrity of heart. And may we depend upon him more and more each and every day until we meet him in glory. Let's pray.